0: One thing I love about this worship service is when we say stand up and greet one another, it isn't just a 15-second nod or something like that. I love taking the time to talk and actually find out what's happening in people's lives. It's great stuff. We've been involved here in a series for the last three weeks. Brian's taken us through this idea of truth in art. And uh, for the last few weeks, what we've discovered, as he shared with us, is that Christians tend to approach topic of art from at least three broad perspectives. One way they do that is by just saying all art's bad and they reject art completely and they say if we're going to use art at all, it's got to be Christian art. It's got to have some kind of explicitly evolvedly Christian dynamic to it. Um, a second response has been actually the, the opposite of that then. From being a rejection of art, the other side is just a complete acceptance of all art and having a, an uncritical perspective towards it, is take it all in without having any sense of critical perspective at all. And then the third view is what actually Brian's been promoting and helping us do over the last few weeks, and that is to look at art and appreciate it and appreciate the message that's involved and appreciate what's being said, but also think about it from a, a critical perspective, not or maybe more of a better word for that. Would be critiquing it rather than being critical of it, having a biblical discernment about what's happening in the art of what's being said. And so, what Brian's done is he's riffed off a couple of of uh, of, of different songs for each uh, each sermon. It has a song that's kind of represented. So, the first week was shame and exploring in the whole topic of shame and the, and, and what's involved in that. The second week was uh, uh you can't always get what you want and seeing. The theme that God actually is in control of all things and that we can't control all of our aspects of life. And then last week he he used a Johnny Cash song talking about the fact that God's going to get you and really looking at the reality of judgment and the the, the sense that we live in a world where judgment's going to happen. This week we're going to listen to something a little bit different. Um, We're going to listen to a song that probably one of the most popular songs of Coldplay has done. Instead of trying to cover it ourselves this morning, we decided we'll just use a video which will allow you to listen to the song, but also to read the words and to hear the the impact and to feel the impact of the song. So listen for a few minutes from this Coldplay song. There's a lot of uh, stories out there about... The background for this song that Chris Martin wrote, probably the most, uh, dominant story, the one that's accepted the most is the fact that, you know, he's married to Gwyneth Palthrow and her father passed away and she was in the hospital with, with him and, uh, went through the, the last hours with him and the agony and came home just drenched in her own tears and brokenhearted, uh, at his death and, um, and Chris was just saying to her, what can I do, what can I do, how can I help you? And uh, her response, at least what they say her response was, the only thing you can do is, you're the only thing that can fix me right now, just hold me. And uh, apparently from the story, the next morning he'd written this song. But what he's doing here is he's, he's really tapping into the reality of our emotions, isn't he? He's, he and he's particularly tapping into pain. And, and, and the pain and the hurt of, of, of emotion that comes when we're facing all different kinds of realities. And I think particularly the issue of depression, uh, of, of how do I cope with the circumstances that I deal with in this world? And the, the happy, sad reality of this song is the fact that this is expressing something that's just common to all of us, isn't it? If you and I could go over to Swift and Finch tomorrow morning and just hang out for a couple hours, each one of us would have stories that would tap into the kinds of emotions that this song is speaking about. You know, you might talk to me about a personal loss that you've experienced, or maybe the rejection that you've had from somebody, or maybe a sense of betrayal, or an expectation that you had that wasn't fulfilled. So many different circumstances that take place, and, and it, it impacts all of us. The issue of depression, the reality of depression is, 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 is common for each one of us. Now, we're here this morning to worship, and we're here to hear from God's Word. We need, to, we need to all understand that the Bible is not a psychology text, but it does speak to all aspects of the human condition, and so it does speak to the issues involving depression. And just a couple of examples of this in the Old Testament and the New Testament example, David is a beautiful example of a person in the Old Testament who experienced emotional struggle, downtimes and loneliness and discouragement. For example, Psalm 10, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourselves in time of trouble? We don't know a lot about the circumstances he's writing about, but it's a, it's a generalized, it's a time of trouble. And what he's feeling is that God has abandoned him. And all of us can relate to that, can't we? Going through times of difficulty and feeling, where is God in this? Psalm 35, 17, Oh Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my life from their ravages, my precious life from these lions. Here it's a circumstance where he is facing enemies, people who are trying to bring him down, people who are trying to undermine him, attacking him. And again, you've experienced this, and he's saying, Lord, how long are you going to let this happen? How can you just be up in heaven letting this take place while I'm experiencing this down here? It's a motion that we can all relate to. Or Psalm 42.11, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Again, David's reflecting and looking at his feelings and thinking about his feelings and trying to understand what are the circumstances that are... Bring these things about. That's an Old Testament example. We could look at all kinds of people in the Old Testament, from David and Moses and Abraham and the prophets, almost all of them expressing honestly before God the difficulties of struggling with negative emotions, particularly with depression. The New Testament also is full of different examples. Probably, again, the one that's the most dominant is Jesus himself. And the the one set of circumstances where we see this clearly pointed out is in Matthew 26, where he's in Gethsemane, before he's taken to the cross, and he's crying out to God. It says, he he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Look at what the Amplified translation or paraphrase puts it. It expands on this and says he began to show grief and distress of mind he was deeply depressed and he said to them my soul is very sad deeply grieved i'm almost dying of sorrow and then on the cross jesus cries out about the ninth hour with a loud voice saying my god my god why have you forsaken me and theologians can argue and debate on all kinds of things regarding what that means but at least it means that Jesus was feeling the feelings of abandonment at that point now here's the son of god a member of the trinity who in his human who took on human flesh and in that humanity experienced what you and i experience and that is the loss and the pain and the experience of depression now as we look at that and think about that just the fact that Jesus went through that, and, 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 and the Bible records depression all over the place, is really amazing. It's difficult in any other world religion to find reflection of pain and agony cried out to God. But it's a universal experience, common to us all. So let's stop and think just for a few minutes about this idea of depression what is it how can we define it well depression has been called the common cold of emotional issues and the reason it's been called that is because all of us experience it and it can happen in at at, at almost any time during the day any time during the week the common cold now depression can range from mild discouragement, like when I misplace my keys, and I'm trying to find it, and so I just kind of, ugh, mild discouragement to suicidal considerations. So there's this wide range of things that depression fits into, okay? Not only is it wide as far as the the amount and the intensity, but the duration of it. It can be very short, you know, you you lose your keys, you find them, and after a few minutes, you forget about it completely. But depression can be something that lasts literally for years and years, where you feel like you're in a deep hole and you can't get out of it. Because it's a reality in us, and we understand what it's like, all of us have have been through it, we have to ask the question in general terms, why do we experience depression? Why does it happen? And I think it's important for us to understand Brian leaned on this in his sermon on shame when he looked at Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. It's important for us to remember that we are created in God's image. Even before our first parents made decisions to rebel against God, we're created in his image, and because of that, we have emotions. The scriptures are full of the fact that God himself expresses and has emotions. We see joy. We see sorrow, we see anger, a full range of emotions that are reflected in God's character. Now, as human beings made in God's image, we have emotions. It's part of our natural makeup. Now, the challenge, of course, is the fact that in our humanity, we're fallen. We're broken. And as broken world people, our emotions can get out of whack. And they can get out of whack for all different kinds of reasons. But it's important for us to remember that as made in God's image and as human beings, we are not just emotion, but we're mental, we're physical, we're spiritual, we're social, as well as emotional creatures. And when something happens to us in any of those areas, it impacts the other areas. So, for example, if we get sick and we're physically struggling, that impacts us emotionally, as well as socially, and can impact us mentally as well. Or, or if if we're struggling with thoughts and and, and trying to deal with negative and, and and difficult thoughts, that's going to impact us emotionally. Or socially, if we experience problems in relationships or losses in relationships, that will impact us emotionally. We're whole creatures made in the image of God, and then you take the brokenness of our reality, and those emotions can come out in all different ways. Often, though not always, but often, as I said whole creatures, it's wrong thinking and bad choices. We think about something improperly. Someone says something to us, and we interpret it in a particular way. We think about it in a particular way. Or we have an experience, we make a bad choice, we are... We're late for a meeting, and so we decide we're going to uh, push the pedal to the metal a little bit more. And uh, and suddenly we find that the Rome police are very vigilant about that. And uh, after the policeman's gone and we have a piece of paper in our hands, we're kicking ourselves around. If I just hadn't been so stupid, if I hadn't been so dumb, if I hadn't been in such a hurry. And so bad choices and wrong thinking combined with our fallen condition can create negative or problematic feelings. But it's important for us also to remember that depression can come from sin, but not all depression is sinful. I've brought I put that in there empty because I think it's important. I've actually read quite a number of Christian authors and speakers who say things like, Your depression is a result of your sin. Okay? Now it's a it's true that depression can come from bad choices and wrong thinking and and all kinds of things that we do that are, that stem from our brokenness. But not all depression is on the basis of sin. We can have people do things to us which cause us to be sad. We can have experiences and losses which aren't as a result of sin that, that can cause us to experience depression. There's many types of and, and reasons for depression that aren't necessarily sinful. So, but the point I'm trying to make is we're complicated creatures in a complicated world. And often the result of living in this world and living with ourselves and in this brokenness is depression and sadness. So what are we supposed to do about it? How are we supposed to handle it? What can be done? Now here again, when you hear Christians talk about this, they often come up with what I call simple solutions to complex problems or another way of saying it is, is microwave solutions to crockpot problems, okay? What can be done about depression? We try to come up with simple answers. Jay Leno came up with a simple answer. He said, he said, you know, I've heard that licking the sweat off of a frog cures depression. Uh, of course, he went on and said, the only problem is when you stop licking the frog gets depressed again, okay? Simple solutions to complex issues. Now. As we look and we take the time to look into the scriptures and think about how do we manage difficult emotions, particularly depression, the first thing I want us to, to know about this or to think about this is the fact that there are some things that the Bible doesn't speak to directly. Now, the Bible speaks to us as creatures in bodies. And God says to us that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139. He says, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that the, our bodies are, are temples of the Holy Spirit and we need to respect them and treat them responsibly. Okay? But the Bible doesn't speak to, say, how do you handle diabetes? Okay, It says that we're supposed to treat ourselves responsibly, but we have to then go and respect the medical profession and hear what they have to say and do the kinds of things that they tell us to do regarding diabetes in order to handle that. If we, if we discover that we have cancer, the Bible doesn't give us clear, simple solutions to issues of cancer and we have to work together with helping professionals to deal with those things. And what you discover in the whole area of depression is that there's a wide range of studies which show that, that there are chemical and bodily, uh, Reasons for depression. As a matter of fact, just this morning I was reading in one news report where some, some scientists have been identifying up to five different styles or types of depression dealing with chemical imbalances within our systems. Okay? And those things need to be addressed by work, by helping professionals. And we don't need to be afraid or think it's wrong or ungodly to look at the help of medical professions professionals in dealing with physical issues that create depression and the Bible doesn't really speak directly beyond that except I have heard Christian speakers say don't you dare think about taking this medication or just kind of masking over your feelings uh, by, by using medications and yet we have to understand that God has made us as whole creatures and our physical and emotional and mental all work together and sometimes we need that help because our physical systems there's things going wrong with that. okay so when we speak about what the bible says i don't want us to be thinking about uh, uh being against what what medicine's discovering regarding depression the bible just touches upon that issue and then says be responsible use wisdom okay but the bible does speak directly about things that we can do regarding some aspects of negative feelings, particularly dealing with depression. There's at least seven things that the Bible speaks to. But before I do that, before I share these seven things, let me make one other precautionary statement. Remember I said about simple solutions to complex problems? Well, also, we as Christians tend to get juiced up when we hear that there's five things to do this way or seven things to do this way. And then what we do is we take them as sledgehammers and knock our friends upside the head with these things. Oh, you know, if you're dealing with negative feelings, well, you just need to be doing this, boom, boom. Or you need to be doing this, boom, boom. That's not why I'm giving these seven things to you. These seven things are incorporated into a process of learning and growing and learning to understand ourselves and managing our feelings. You know, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, Uh, Be angry, but don't sin. And don't let the sun go down in your anger. What he's saying is, you'll have these feelings, but learn how to seek to manage them responsibly. And these are seven different ways that we work on managing these feelings. Okay? The first one is what Brian has been saying the last three weeks in this entire series. Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget that God says... He has saved us, not because of our works done in righteousness and our own righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. One of the most helpful things we can remember while we're going through negative feelings is that we are accepted by Christ, by God, through Christ's sacrifice, not on the basis of how we've screwed up and had problems, Not on the basis of feeling right, but on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice for us. We have been accepted by him and the beloved. And the message of the gospel says, not by works, nor by your own righteousness, but because Jesus said, I have put my love upon you. Now, if you don't know about that love of Christ, and you're here on a rainy Sunday morning, I'm at what are you doing here anyway? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing, just teasing, okay? What I want you to do, though, is, is, is to stop and consider the promises of the scriptures around the gospel. It is the greatest encouragement to us when we're going through difficult times. God says, I have placed my everlasting love on you. And as Brian stressed a few weeks ago, because that's the case, I will work all this mess out For my good and for your good. For my purposes and for your good. As believers in Christ who've experienced the gospel, we can hold on to that promise. But the second thing that the, the scriptures give us is our thinking patterns. Again and again in the scriptures, Paul and Peter, Jesus and others, speak to the fact that we need to be renewing our minds. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. That means the way that we think and what we're focusing on and how we express energy in thinking is important. That's a responsibility we have. In Philippians 4, verse 8, Paul says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think on these things. So what the scriptures are calling us to is to... Review the way that we think. A friend of mine came up with an idea of this. He has—he he takes a three-by-five card, and on one side it says, stop. And on the other side, he writes, think. And then he put this first, Philippians 4.8. And when he's doing what we call stinking thinking, is he'll just pull that card out and say, wait a second, stop. And he turns it around and he said, these are the things I need to be thinking about. Now, my wife had a little more creative thing. The other day we were driving in the car, and I was barfing about something. I don't know what it was, but she said, "You know, I think we need to start holding each other accountable to the way we're thinking. And any time one of us starts being negative in our talk, the other we we will then owe the other one a dollar." It's amazing. Godliness doesn't motivate us very much, but when it comes to my pocketbook, you know, I'm ready to start doing the right thing. You know, but that the scriptures say we are responsible for the way that we're thinking. We need to be in the scriptures and to be studying the scriptures to see how God views things and to see things from his point of view. A third thing we need to do is to embrace our limits. What do I mean by that? Well, one day I'm driving along in my car on uh, on the Beltway. This is when we were in St. Louis, and I'm driving around the Beltway in St. Louis, and suddenly the transmission goes out. And I pull the car over, and I have meetings to go to. I mean, I have an agenda. I have things that are important. and and, and I'm on the side of the road, and my car won't go anywhere, the, the transmission, you know, I can't put it in gear, I'm stuck. And I'm just sitting there by the side of the road, getting more and more frustrated because I can't do anything about it. And you know what? I can't. And the scriptures would say, learn to embrace your limits. We are finite creatures. He is the infinite, eternal God. We ain't. And yet because we are made in His image, we want this eternity to be something we can grasp. Ecclesiastes puts it this way. He has made everything beautiful in its time. However, He has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You see what the author is saying there? Embrace your limits. You can't figure it all out. That doesn't mean we shouldn't explore and learn and grow and change. But at the end of the day, we also have to embrace the realities that we can't do it all, we can't know it all, and we can't control it all, which is the root of a lot of our negative feelings and thinking. Another thing the Scripture speaks to is the idea of nutrition and rest. Say, what? What? Actually, the Bible shows in a number of places how important this is. One of my favorites is the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 18, Elijah has what we might call a literal mountaintop experience. Okay, He takes on the prophets of Baal, 450 of them against Elijah. And you've got to read the story. He takes them on, and all of the prophets of Baal are wiped out. And then after they've wiped them out, Queen Jezebel, who the prophets of Baal worked for, said, I'm going to get you, sucker. I'm after you. And Elijah, exhausted, spiritually, physically, emotionally drained, when he gets that threat from Jezebel, he runs like a scared cat. And God looks down from heaven and says, you coward, look what I just did for you. You call yourself a prophet. No, God doesn't do that. God graciously takes his prophet, and gives him a vacation. He puts him to sleep, and then he comes along, an angel comes along and kind of kicks him in the side. He gives him a good meal. He puts him to sleep again. He kicks him back again and gives him another good meal, and then he says, go up and take take 40 days off in the wilderness. Sometimes we need to take care of ourselves by getting more sleep. Sometimes we need to take care of ourselves. Um, Caffeine, anyone? Sorry, Swift and Finch. There's always decaf available, okay? Um, Chocolate. How do you handle stress? Food can be a blessing and a curse. Sleep can feel like it's fighting away. Sometimes we need to take a break to get proper nutrition and proper rest so our bodies can recover. And that doesn't just happen in one night. So the scriptures speak to us about taking care of ourselves. Relationships are critically important. I don't know about you, but when I go through a time of deep discouragement, feelings of rejection, I want to isolate. I take that the wrong food, and I put that in my body, and then I want to isolate. I'll go watch a movie, I'll go watch TV, I don't want to talk, I don't want to interact. And the scriptures say that's not healthy. We need one another. We need relationships. He's made us social creatures. We can't exist on our own. So Hebrews 10, 25 says, don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. But encourage one another. Now, sometimes we need to make we need to make sure that when we're reaching out and we're hurting, that we're reaching out to safe places and to safe people. Matter of fact, cloud. Henry Cloud and and Townsend, the authors Cloud and Townsend, have written a whole book called Safe People. And we need to spend time learning what it means to identify people we can actually share ourselves with and not be afraid that it's going to kick back on us. But still, we need that. You know, the church needs to be a place of safety. But not always in our conversations after we've had the offering before we have the sermon. We have to be discerning where we find this. But we also need to find and learn and make a, an agenda to try to f- understand what it means to be safe places for each other. That's why we, we're, we have small groups here. That's why we have fellowship groups. And we're going to be working and continuing to design those so that you can have places to go and to connect with people more than just on a superficial level. But God calls us not to isolate, especially when we're going through times of discouragement. And then another thing is worship and praise. Now, this can come across as trite, but interestingly enough, again and again in the scriptures, we see God calling his people to worship and to praise in pain. Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, after they'd been beaten with rods, they were in no shape to have a worship service, and yet that's what they did. The prophet Habakkuk was dealing with God's prophecy that he was going to come in and wipe out Israel with the Assyrians. And the prophet Habakkuk was saying, God, how can you possibly be God and do something like that? After having some interesting conversations, Habakkuk's conclusion was this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now listen, for an Israelite back in the days of the agrarian culture, he can't define things worse than this. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, brothers and sisters, all I can say to you is that worship and praise is not an Quick, simplistic anecdote to pain. But it is a way to move our eyes away from our hurt and to begin to see things from God's point of view. To actively seek his face. To sing songs of salvation to ourselves. And to acknowledge who he is and give thanks for who he is will have a huge impact on you as you go through these times of discouragement. Finally, service. Getting outside of ourselves. Maybe some of you have heard of um, the famous psychiat- psychiatrist... Um, now I'm thinking of a different name. Um, I'm, th- I'm saying Mendenhall, and it's not... I can't think of his name. Can you believe that? It'll come back to me. It just s- s- took, took away. but. The- He was on the radio, and someone called him and said, Listen, I've been experiencing deep depression. Can you tell me one thing to do about it? And he said, I want you to drop everything, go out of your house, go across the tracks, and serve somebody. Now, what he didn't know what he was doing is he was giving a biblical statement. Get outside of yourself and serve somebody. Galatians says, so then as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Not only to those who are of the household of faith, but beginning there and then moving out. Something unusual happens to us when we give ourselves to others. Years ago, I was listening to WSB down in Atlanta, and for years there was an African-American pastor by the name of Hosea Williams who... Um, was kind of a rabble rouser and, uh, a, a good rabble rouser though, uh, in the, in the Atlanta area for civil rights. But every year he would have a homeless meal at Christmas. And he'd always get on the radio and say, now all of you folks who are going to have your great meals today, I want you to come down to this place and I want you to help us serve these folks their Christmas meals. Well, about March of one year, Hosea Williams is, 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 is walking around somewhere and this older white woman, who he described as an older white rich woman, I don't know if she was rich or not, but she comes up and she, without even saying anything, she just comes up and gives him a big old bear hug. And he's just startled, didn't know, what's happening? And she said, Hosea, you saved my life. Five years ago, my husband died, and, year, and Christmas has been for me the most miserable time of my life. But I heard you on the radio this year. And you're telling us to come down and help feed the poor folks. So I went down and I started slapping food on those plates and then started talking to people and started hugging on people. She said, it changed my life. I'll never see Christmas again without doing that. Because it gave me an opportunity to get outside of myself and to serve somebody else. And it's a biblical truth. It's a biblical truth. So seven things. Gospel. Gospel. Thinking patterns, embracing our limits, nutrition, rest, relationships, worship and praise, service. Again, can I say, these are not easy solutions. Don't go beating each other up with these things and saying, it's obvious that you're just not doing this. This is part of the process of our working through those feelings and dealing with them authentically before God, who is willing and able to hear us and take our burdens. So, in conclusion, what the scriptures show us, here's my warning, sorry, no simplistic solutions and process. The the scriptures call us to what I would say realism with hope. Realism with hope. The fact is, in this broken, in this broken world, all healing is proximate healing. What do I mean by that? That means we don't experience full, complete healing and restoration in this world. But what we do experience is God's intervention in not only helping us to cope, but to set our eyes on the ultimate prize. What do you mean, Bob? This is what I mean. Martha, her, 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 her brother Lazarus just died. She comes to Jesus, obviously in sorrow, And says to him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she comes back with a simplistic Christian answer. She says, yeah, I know. On the last day, he's going to rise again. And Jesus comes back to her and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You see what he was doing? He was saying, Martha, look to me. Look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. This is what the author of Hebrews says to us. In Hebrews 12, verse 1, he says, says, look at Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Now you, as you go through your hardships and your sufferings, that God is using to shape and to mold you into the person he wants you to be, look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And then the second thing the scriptures say is, anticipate his coming again. The day is coming, brothers and sisters, when Jesus will be back. And all the sorrow and all the pain and all the tears are going to be washed away. And the Scriptures call us in the midst of the pain to wait and anticipate and cry out, even so, come Lord Jesus, take away the sorrow, take away the pain, bring your kingdom in. It's sad, isn't it? Chris Martin writes this song for his wife in the midst of her pain. Over six years later, they're divorcing each other. He couldn't fix her, ultimately. He gave her care at that point, and that was genuine. But it wasn't full healing. We'll only find the full healing as we turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I know that there are people here this morning who right now are experiencing pain. And I certainly don't want to be one who preaches a sugar coating on that hurt. Lord God, as we think and anticipate through these seven things that the scriptures call us to, as we take responsibility for ourselves to face the realities of this moment, I do pray, Lord, for my friends and for myself, that we can look to you who has gone before us, who has walked the walk, who has experienced these feelings and yet has not walked away from his father. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give us the hope of anticipating the future new heavens and the new earth, even as we seek to walk faithfully with you through these days. I pray this in Jesus' name.